0: and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And it is time for another classic episode and it's actually going to be a continuation of our previous classic episode. So this episode, the HBO Story Part 2, originally published on May 7th, 2014. And um, we are just going to jump right in. Get back into the story. Let's go. HBO as an entity, has heavily influenced what cable television is and what entertainment delivery services are in general. If it hadn't been for HBO, our landscape would be dramatically different today. So that's why we're doing it. In fact, think about it. Without HBO, you don't have uh, cable companies, cable system operators, pushing cable, copper cable, into cities anywhere near as quickly, right? Right. You might not have ever seen it happen or it might have taken a decade longer, which means you would not even have the infrastructure that the Internet relies on today for high speed Internet. We'd be using telephone lines still.
1: Uh, yeah, you might furthermore not have had people adopt as quickly the idea of using satellites to beam information, uh, television information out to many far spread networks.
0: Exactly. So like we said, landscape very different without HBO whether you love it or hate it it's a large part of why the world is as far as the cable world and entertainment worlds why things are the way they are so
1: so um a little tiny bit of backstory very tiny HBO owned by time
0: yes time incorporated not not time the the physical entity like the actual
1: not father time
0: not the progression I, not, of, of changes throughout a, a not a the given fourth span. dimension no that so we know of. Time Incorporated, the company that owned Time Magazine or still does Time Magazine, Fortune Magazine, Sports Illustrated, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Uh, correct. So in 1980, Time launched a second pay TV channel called Cinemax, yeah. uh, primarily as a competitor to the less expensive Showtime.
0: Yes. So there were a couple different ways to compete against Showtime. One was let's try and grab as much exclusive content as we possibly can that Showtime can't have. And thus people will say, hey, we want HBO because they have these movies and Showtime doesn't. However, that's really expensive. Another approach was to create a second paid te- television network, Cinemax, and to run a lot of the same programming that HBO itself already had and maybe concentrate on some genres that didn't necessarily fit into HBO's corporate uh appearances. Like they're they're. The their their culture.
1: And furthermore, that happened to be a lot less expensive to purchase, like I like cult films and yeah. uh kind of obscure noir stuff.
0: One of my favorite cult films of all time I first saw on Cinemax. I had heard about it, but I'd never seen it. And that film, of course, is the brilliant movie Shock Treatment, the not a sequel, not a prequel, but an equal to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And that's how I saw it. I the first time I ever experienced it, it was shown on Cinemax because it fit into that realm of the Cinemax movie where it were, they, there were some of these kind of cult classic schlocky sort of cheap movies to, to license, but they still had their audience. So this approach did not come without criticism, specifically from Viacom, which was the parent company of Showtime. They said that Cinemax was being offered at below cost. In other words, HBO was suffering a loss to run Cinemax just so that they could undercut Showtime. Uh, now, if you remember, Showtime kind of uh, Viacom also did this thing in the last episode we talked about, where Show- Viacom ended up buying. They kind of
1: aggressively undercut HBO. HBO. They, they
0: essentially muscled HBO out of entire markets because they made this exclusive agreement with a, the the largest cable provider in the United States at that time.
1: So there's a little bit of a of a war going on. Yeah,
0: here. a little bit of a uh, oh yeah. So, yeah, that's that's kind of the technical term. But Cinemax, you know, starts doing pretty well. And also in 1980, HBO has an affiliate in every single state in the United States. Now, if you listen to our last episode, you realize that's a big deal. This is the first time that any channel has been able to do that. And it is because they're using this satellite delivery system where the various cable operators across the United States have the receiver, uh, dishes that bring in the signal and then they can distribute it to their customers. So now there's an affiliate in every state. Remember, it started off just in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. Then it spread through most of Pennsylvania, then to New York, and then finally started to creep out into the rest of the United States. So big moment for HBO. Uh,
1: all of this is allowing them to have a pretty incredible profit considering that they only hit profitability a year or two previously. Right. Um, they, they, Their profits have grown 80 percent from 1978 to 1980.
0: Yeah. Which, again, understandable because now they're they're available in way more markets. So the company is experiencing astronomical growth at this point because because once the cable operators decide, yes, we will carry HBO, that gives HBO the chance to target. New customer bases that they had no access to before.
1: Oh, sure. Um, and they're, as a result, able to offer their employees some pretty ridiculous benefits. Yeah. Um, it, it kind of, the, the stories that I've read about it at the time remind me a little bit of what happened after the Facebook boom. Right. Um, and, and just that, that tiny free, freewheeling startup culture that turned into this very large, very freewheeling startup culture.
0: It reminds me a lot of what uh, Google attempts to continue to push sure. at the Googleplex. Mm-hmm. And of course, anyone who's worked in one of the satellite offices of Google probably is very familiar with what things, what, what's available at the Googleplex versus what's available in some of those satellite offices. So there was also some tension between, say, HBO and the folks over at Time. Keep in mind that at this point, they're still all working in the same building. They're working in time incorporated's headquarters. And so you had sort of these freewheeling young guys, uh, who are running HBO who are having parties all the time. They said that essentially the, the motto at HBO was work, 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 party, party, party. And, uh, and so, you know, any excuse to get together and have a big dinner and, you know, they're still getting stuff done, but they also took a lot of time and, and developed this camaraderie. There's still some tension actually within the company itself because a very different culture existed between Time Incorporated employees and HBO. Now, in 1981, Showtime makes a big move, which you could argue at the time was mostly posturing. Uh, they decided to go to a full 24-hour schedule. Uh, they-
1: right, because uh, if you remember from our last episode, again, at the time, these cable stations would sign off at a certain point every night.
0: Yeah, like after midnight, they'd say, all right, time time to go to bed because we don't have anything else we can show you. Mm-hmm. So Showtime goes to 24 hours not necessarily being able to support that with enough content so that they're not incredibly repetitive. Uh, but HBO, not to be outdone, follows suit. Mm-hmm. So later on in 1981, they also become 24-hour. Uh, and so you anytime you wanted to turn on HBO, if it's 3 in the morning, you could turn on HBO and something would be playing. Uh, and then they end up also hitting the big time on one of those pre-buy movies we talked about. Now, this is where HBO puts in money in the pre-production phase for a movie, and in return, they get exclusive rights to show that movie on HBO for a certain length of time. Mm -hmm. And in this case, they hit the jackpot. Now, it's not a movie that uh, I think a lot of people are going to be rip-roaring excited about, but it was a a critically acclaimed success. It was on Golden Pond.
1: Yeah, it won uh, multiple Academy Awards.
0: Yep, so this exclusivity was a big deal. It was a movie that people had heard about they knew that it was award-winning and hbo was the only place you could see it outside of the theater now keep in mind this is before the home video craze starts like this is really before the vcr has taken off so hbo exclusivity in this case was really important now they started moving to these output deals which is when a pay tv service agrees to take on all the movies made by a certain studio over a certain time span again tends to be kind of a grab bag situation. You might get a few big hits. You might have some mediocre films in there that, you know, some people care about, but most people don't. And you could have some outright flops. So a little bit of a risky situation. There's also this idea of a multi-year agreement, which HBO would agree to pick up a certain number of films a studio would produce over a given period of time, but have a little bit more say in which ones. Mm -hmm. Like you made... We want 20 movies that you guys are going to make over the course of the next five years.
1: But we get to pick them.
0: Yeah. So once the five year period starts coming up, you're like, well, now, now it, we'll
1: take that one. We're, and that we're one stuck. That one okay. Yeah,
0: but but we got huh. to be choosy at the beginning. Uh, either way, these exclusivity deals were really, really expensive. And it meant that it was tough to uh, to make a profit unless you continuously grow. Now, at this time, that wasn't a problem because cable was still entering in. Lots more markets, which meant you had access to brand new customers. So in the early so days, you were kind
1: of automatically growing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You didn't have to worry about about boosting your your customer base so much because people were still eager to join. It wasn't until a couple years later that things got a little tougher, but we'll get there. So companies were paying these big bucks for exclusive rights to movies for just a couple of years. Eventually, those exclusivity rights would expire. And those movies could be cu- carried on other pay television stations like Showtime could pick it up. So in the long run, you would have a a bank of movies that was essentially identical to your competitors. So for a couple of years, you'd have exclusivity, but it wasn't a long term. Uh, it would
1: wind up evening out.
0: Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, one of those things that that, you know, they really had to look at a little bit later because it was just it was not the best way to continuously grow your revenue now. 1983, we get one of my favorite stories.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, this this is a big one. So, so 20th Century Fox negotiated to get Star Wars onto pay TV.
0: Yes. So Star Wars, big movie in 1977. 1983, of course, that's when Return of the Jedi came out. So the original trilogy, you know, the only one that exists, is complete at this time. And Star Wars itself, the movie that started it all, uh, the second big blockbuster following Jaws from 1975, is available to go onto pay TV. However, it's not an exclusive deal. This is something oh, right. they, they
1: negotiate to put it on every pay, pay television
0: TV. station essentially. So Showtime's going to get it. HBO's going to get it. Now, normally the way these channels like to try and and position the big ticket items that they get is to wait. And put it out on uh, prime time, preferably like 8 p.m.
1: Yeah, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, uh, yeah. S- Sunday night, probably preferably to, to really get all of the home viewers in.
0: Right. So you would, you know, and when the weekend would come around 8 p.m., that's when you could be guaranteed that that was when the biggest movies were going to be uh, uh, showcased on these pay television stations. However, Star Wars was such a big deal being that summer blockbuster that both Showtime and HBO wanted to uh, make sure they took advantage of it and did not allow the other channel to show it before they did. So HBO didn't want Showtime to show it first. Showtime didn't want HBO to show it first. According to the agreement they signed with Fox, neither could show it any time before 6 a.m. on February 1st. So both of them scheduled the first showing of Star (laughs) Wars to be 6 a.m. February 1st, even knowing that that's not an ideal time for their customers. At all. They just didn't want the other one to get the scoop. And HBO went a step further. So remember in that last episode where I talked about cable being a cutthroat business and nothing is really, you know, off limits that includes bribery. That's probably a strong word. HBO didn't bribe 20th Century Fox. Well,
1: they paid them more money. They paid them more money. That's very much like a bribe.
0: Yeah, so that they could be allowed to show Star Wars one minute after midnight on February 1st. So six hours before Showtime could.
1: Although they weren't allowed to announce it.
0: Yeah, so you had to have been watching HBO at one, midnight. Midnight, at one minute after midnight on February 1st to have noticed that this had happened. However, the... They they were able to say legitimately that they were the first paid television station to carry Star Wars. And that actually carried some weight. There were people who said, wait a minute, why is HBO showing it before Showtime? I should have HBO, not Showtime. Despite the fact that we're talking about a six hour window when most people wouldn't be watching television anyway. Um That that part didn't matter. So very interesting uh, that this. Battle happened. It was another expensive battle, but an important one, as we all know, Star Wars, one of the most important pieces of art created <laughs> in the history. There's like the Mona Lisa, Star Wars, David. That's the order it goes in. So 1983 also was the year when another amazing piece of art premiered on hbo an original program aimed at children
1: uh yeah jim henson's fraggle rock
0: yeah down in fraggle rock so i was a huge fraggle rock fan me too back in the day me too um they actually came to Dragon Con and we covered the Dragon Con parade. Uh We actually shot this coverage, me and Ben Bolin and Lauren, you were there. And yeah, we did it like Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade style. <laughs> it never it never saw the light of day, probably uh, because there were long stretches where nothing was happening.
1: Oh, we, we we haven't had anyone had time to uh edit
0: the whole thing. Oh, right, right. It was a really long. It was
1: very long. Yeah. But, but uh, the but Fraggles were in it. They they were in it. And there is a photo gallery that I did. I, I was running a still camera uh through the parade. And so and, and she she waved at me.
0: Yeah. I got choked up. Yeah, I got choked up watching the Fraggles. I mean, I'm not I'm not embarrassed to admit it. The Fraggles meant a lot to me. I'm getting a little teary right now, in fact. All right. Well, that was uh, the first segment of HBO Story Part 2. We've got more chapters here than Game of Thrones, I think. I guess we'll find out. But first, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Now, Jim Henson had already had a relationship with HBO. HBO had produced a couple of years earlier a Christmas special, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Oh, right. So now Jim Henson had the the freedom to create this entire children's series, which lasted five seasons. And it ended up uh, being a big success. It was one of the few breakaway successes of children's programming on HBO. A lot of the other programming uh, people liked the idea of, but no one ever bothered to watch. So... Fraggle Rock was not among that. That was an incredibly popular show. In fact, so popular that HBO would end up making uh, other versions of Fraggle Rock for uh, other countries. And some of them would have their own version of Doc and Sprocket uh, that wouldn't necessarily be called Doc and Sprocket. And they would be different people like that. Like, I think in England it was like a lighthouse keeper who was really crabby. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, it they, they would also be dubbed into different languages. So everyone uh-huh. had their own version of Fraggle Rock. Uh, which was kind of cool. It wasn't just a, a, you know, it wasn't just switching out the soundtrack. It was actually tailor-made to these nations. And another series that premiered that year, and I remember this series too, was not necessarily the news, which was kind of a news parody sketch comedy show. It was the, the news thing was kind of the, the conceit, the, Mm -hmm. the bookends for these various sketches that may or may not be very loosely connected.
1: Uh, Right. And it was Conan O'Brien's very first television writing gig.
0: Yep. Also, uh, not consistently very good. But (laughs) but one of the examples of HBO getting into original programming, Mm -hmm. which is, again, they started looking at how to differentiate themselves from the showtimes of the world. And these exclusivity deals, like we said, could be really, really expensive. So maybe making original programming would have been a better approach. Now, they learned that making good original programming is very tricky. It might not be expensive, but it's very hard to do.
1: And that getting people to pay attention is also sometimes tricky.
0: Right, yeah. Sometimes they would make an amazing show that the critics loved and nobody watched.
1: We will talk about several of those in our third episode. But meanwhile, in 1984, 12 years after its inception, HBO finally got their own offices.
0: Yeah, they moved over into a building on 42nd Avenue, and it had the nickname The Flash Cube. All right, kids, years ago, like in the 80s, cameras, which had film in them, none of this digital stuff, also had flash, you know, flashes. like, like a, a, a separate
1: flash unit yeah, that you had to attach to the top. A little
0: cube that would flash light so you could get some light on that image you're trying to capture onto film. Uh, that's why it was called the flash cube, because the building looked like one. So this building that looked like something you've never seen looked exactly like it. Just just like that thing. So now you had a, a building where the actual departments could all sit together. The, the divisions were no longer divided. They could all be in a cohesive unit. So that amazing camaraderie they had developed back at Time Incorporated when they had this kind of startup mentality went away.
1: Was completely ruined.
0: Yeah. Suddenly they were physically closer and yet emotionally so distant. <laughs> um, it turned out that HBO was starting to become more of a business less of this kind of startup entrepreneur approach and uh, it had
1: more of a, of a corporate structure.
0: Yeah. And it also was when HBO started to notice that growing as a business was going to get very difficult. They did what was called hitting the wall. The wall in this case was saturation. You had a saturation point where cable had pretty much entered all the markets it was going to go into. So that meant that you no longer could expect to suddenly have access to 20,000 new subscribers, potential new subscribers, because uh, someone finally built the infrastructure out to this one region. Now, all the regions pretty much had cable. So there were not going to be any of these these gift baskets of potential customers just arriving at HBO. They were going to have to work for it. Mm -hmm. And also, on top of that, they had a churn rate going on, right? So churn rate is when you lose a certain number of uh, of customers over a course of a a general amount of time. So theirs was about 2% per month back in in 1984.
1: Uh, Which means that in order to just stay even, you have to grow by 2%.
0: Right, to to just maintain the same number of customers Mm -hmm. from the beginning of the month to the end of the month. If you want to grow beyond that, then obviously you have to get more than 2% new customers to replace the 2% who, who left. Now, some of the people who left, they left because they were relocating and eventually maybe they come back. But some of them were just saying, oh, I don't want to have this expense anymore. So you had to convince them, hey, we're worth the money. Or you had to convince new people, hey, we're worth the money. And now there were fewer new people to get access to. So this was a very scary time at HBO. You had this young company that had been used to this incredible growth suddenly realizing, oh, things are not going to be as easy anymore. We're not going to have this essentially a blank check that we can hand out for these exclusivity deals We're not going to have this this endless line of new customers coming in through the door. What are we going to do? And in fact, one of the first things they had to do uh, was lay off about one hundred and twenty five employees, which was the first time in HBO's history that people had been let go like that.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Also around the same time, the VCR became a thing.
0: And that was a boy. Talk about a a big uh, bite out of the business. So. Keep in mind, remember, this is the time when HBO, their main purpose was to create a way for people to watch these movies that were uncut and uncensored that wouldn't be carried on broadcast television. But now with the birth of the VCR and the growth of the home video market where you could go to a rental store and rent a movie, you could get access to all sorts of movies beyond the what we'll call the playlist that HBO had access to. Remember, HBO's paying licensing fees to be able to show these movies. Mm-hmm. So they don't have licenses for every movie. They have to pick and choose. And sometimes they, they pick before they even know what the movie's going to be like. And sometimes they lose out on that. Oh,
1: sure. And they can only air so many things at a time. They can only pay to keep so many things on right. the air at a single time. And whatever they happen to have might not be what you feel like watching. Yeah. Once, uh, once stores started carrying rentable VHS tapes, it was, I mean, for, for for younger listeners, I mean, like, I have a hard time imagining this and I remember VHS mm-hmm. tapes. I remember all of that yeah. very clearly. And, and it still sounds crazy to me that you that there was a time when you couldn't just watch whatever you wanted.
0: Yeah. No, you would go into the store and you would hope that that one copy of Young Einstein was still available because, you know, what a breakaway hit that was. Um,
1: hey, that was an important film.
0: Hey, Yahoo! Serious. One of my heroes. Okay. I'm not, don't take anything <laughs> away from the serious, but yeah, the, just, just the fact that you go into the store, you know, and hope that the thing is the movie that you want is there. There was an illusion that you had a, a more choice with the home video market. Now the truth was dependent upon how many uh, copies of a certain movie the rental store had and how big a customer base it had. Cause there might be some movies that unless you just lucked out, were constantly being checked out. So, so it, so, Seem so, like so you had a choice.
1: Even if Blockbuster had 30 copies of whatever it was, yeah. they might all be gone. Right.
0: Yeah. So, so hypothetically, you had a much larger choice, but in practice, it may or may not have happened.
1: And either way, it was probably more than just Beastmaster over and over and yes. over again.
0: Yeah. HBO started getting the, there was a joke that HBO actually stood for, uh, Hey, Beastmaster's on. Um, yeah, that, that was, uh, the, that was again a, a comment about the repeats, uh, and, uh, which were the movies that had been shown multiple times within a certain licensing period and returns, which were movies that were still under license, but had been pulled out of the circulation of movies shown on HBO and then reinserted later on. So, you know, HBO licensed out these movies and those licenses were very specific. They would say, you can show this movie X number of times. And during these times of day, Mm -hmm. like they were very, the way you had to program an HBO schedule was dependent upon these licenses. Cause some of them were like, okay, we don't want you showing this, sh- this movie before 6 p.m. Well, then they would have to plan that out, you know, before 6 p.m. And, also, or I'm after sure that, midnight.
1: I'm sure that FCC regulations and stuff like that would prevent some content from being shown, well, uh, during.
0: Yeah. HBO specifically, uh, police themselves and put, they, they would not allow anything that was, uh, R rated to go on, uh, before 8 p.m. So it had to be after 8 p.m. to, to go on to HBO. Uh, that was largely a self-imposed rule, and it was just an easy one for them to, to go with because they knew that that would be something that would most likely fit their subscribers' uh-huh. desires.
1: And would at least mollify, uh, the kind of groups that would have had complaints otherwise.
0: Exactly. Uh, most of them, yes. So anyway, those licenses put limiting factors on HBO. How many movies they, they would have access to at a given time, how many, how frequently they could show it. But then HBO also had, this model, this business model, where the idea was, we're going to get this pool of movies. We're going to make a schedule where we're going to show these movies at different times on different days so that our customers can look at the schedule and say, oh, the movie I want to see is going to be on at 6 p.m. on Wednesday. I'll make sure to watch it on Wednesday at 6 p.m. But instead, what they found out was that people were treating HBO like it was a television channel.
1: That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, once again, once VCRs entered the picture and they could just record something.
0: Yeah. It didn't matter so much about when it was on, but they, they, and, they like to.
1: And also, yeah, someone would just turn on the TV and just be like, Oh, what's on right now? Okay.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's Beastmaster again. Yeah. See, so that was the problem was that people were not treating it like the way the, the company had thought of the service and. We, like a movie we, theater. right? Yeah, exactly. We've seen this happen in other industries, right? We've seen it where someone creates a service, let's say Twitter. Great example. Someone creates a service and they have in their mind the way the service is going to be used by the customers. But and the then, customers
1: go, oh, this great thing for this entirely different purpose. Exactly. And just run with
0: it. And so if you're a good company, you move with the customers and you don't try and force them into a model that they don't want Because otherwise your, your business suffers. So HBO started seeing, Oh, we're going to have to think of some other way to change up our programming so that we don't have the same, you know, list of movies showing so frequently because we're going to end up driving customers away. And we're already having to deal with this churn issue and the saturation issue. Mm -hmm. So all of these factors were going into HBO and and the executives minds thinking, All right, we got to, we got to think of a new way of approaching content. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, Michael Fuchs, who we had talked about in the last episode, who had come over from a, a talent agency and had joined HBO, he becomes the head of HBO. He replaced Frank Biondi, who had pretty much been forced out. He had made a really expensive licensing agreement with Columbia Pictures. Uh, there was a little movie called Ghostbusters that nearly uh, broke the bank for HBO. Yeah, we're talking like millions of dollars, like forty million dollars, just to have this one movie because they they had agreed beforehand, before knowing what this was going to be, and there was no cap on how much they could spend. So that deal pretty much meant the end for Beyondy.
1: Yeah, well that that was that was the first place that I saw Ghostbusters. So G-
0: wow, I saw it in the theater, opening day. The librarian scared what, me.
1: What are we in 1984? I was two. <laughs>
0: We've got more to say about this chapter in HBO's history, but before we get to that, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed the 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May live on NFL Network, ESPN2 and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit nfl.com/schedule release to learn more.
0: Alright. We're up to 1985 and that's when HBO decided to launch a big summer advertising campaign. Now they They saw that the wall had hit, they saw the saturation and churn issue, they saw the exclusivity issue, and they thought, how can we attract more customers so that we can continue to grow? And they decided that they would really concentrate in an advertising campaign that spanned the summer of 1985. And they would repeat this a couple of times.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And why the summer, you ask? Summer is, A, when kids are out of school and parents need something to do with these suddenly free tiny humans. Yeah,
0: most of us uh, have to continue to work in the summer months. And so how do you keep the tiny humans from rising up against their masters and enslaving us all? Get HBO.
1: Furthermore, as most of us know, summer is when many television shows are in reruns. Uh, All of the all of the really big primary primetime sort of things are broken for the summer.
0: Yeah. Broadcast television is is tends to be pretty, pretty barren over the summer. Like you're either watching reruns or stuff you just don't care about,
1: especially back in those days. These days it's changing a little bit. It's a little
0: bit. It's a little bit now where you can get. Uh, interesting programming, yeah, all year, especially now that you have shows that are dividing their seasons up into season Which five point one and crazy. five point two. Breaking Bad, you <sighs> don't don't perpetuate the Breaking Bad problem. I mean, Breaking Bad, great show, but you know, splitting up your seasons, ooh, bad Breaking Bad, bad. All right. But at, at any, any rate, anyway, yeah, HBO decided, hey, we we can take this opportunity to really grab this this audience that doesn't yet subscribe to HBO. So what they did was they sent ads through direct mail and they also did telemarketing. They called people, cold calling people to convince them to uh, sign up. And uh, as irritating as it was, it, was it effective. worked. Yeah. yeah. They sent six hundred forty million ads to folks between 1985 and 1992. Six hundred forty million twice the population of the United States.
1: They, they also did start investing more in original programming. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, sports was something that they had been doing since the beginning.
0: Yep. that was one of the you, you remember the two things you could watch on HBO when it premiered was uh, a movie uh, that that was about logging and a hockey game. So sports had always been part of HBO. Also stand-up comedy specials had been a part of HBO since the early days.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, those really great old Robin Williams or Richard Pryor specials.
0: Steve Martin had mm-hmm. a good one too. Yeah, you had a bunch of people who were the, the kind of the, the, the loudest voices of comedy in the seventies and eighties. George Carlin, another oh, one. Yeah, yeah. Some amazing comedians who would get their HBO special. And even to this day, you'll hear comedians talk about you know, feeling like they made it when they got an HBO special like mm-hmm. that. That was like a mark of success. You know, that's when you know you've you've arrived. So they continued to do that. So stand up comedy, also big. They also ended up backing several documentary series. They ended up creating several series, including a brand called America Undercover. There are several documentaries in that series. And uh, that helped d- differentiate them again more from the showtimes in the world. Now, keep in mind. Showtime at this point, not really getting into original programming that much. They were still very much dependent upon the uncut, uncensored versions of the movies. HBO was trying to kind of break away from that a little bit, while still having movies on the channel, but trying to differentiate themselves by adding variety that you could not get anywhere else.
1: Uh, Right, right. It's a little bit, if you remember from our cable provider and streaming media discussion, or I mean, if you pay attention to the Internet these days, a a little bit of uh, what what Netflix is doing to kind of try to move itself forward in front of channels like HBO. In
0: fact, if HBO had not done this, we would not have a Netflix. Absolutely. And not. we certainly wouldn't have a Netflix that's making its own content. Same mm-hmm. thing with Hulu. Same thing with Amazon. Yeah. The The reason why they're able to make their own content, why that's a viable choice is because HBO tried it and made it work. Yeah. Now, not everything HBO did with the independent uh, stuff that they did, the original programming stuff worked. And we'll talk a lot about some of both the successes and the failures. Um, not everything caught on. However, they also partnered at that time with a company called Thorn EMI. Which was an independent film producer and video distributor. So their main business model was to partner with other movie studios that did not have a home video distribution market. So some of the big ones did. They they had they had it all in place where either they had their own production company or distribution company or they partnered with someone already. Uh, Thorny and I would would partner with lots of smaller smaller uh, distribution companies. So they ended up getting a lot of. Um, well, those cheap action movies, you know, the ones that starred Internet Darling uh Chuck Norris, those were oh, big ones. Uh-huh. But uh the following year, nineteen eighty six, Canon Pictures bought out uh Thorn EMI's interest. So HBI and Thorn EMI had uh um HBO and Thorn EMI had partnered together. Canon Pictures comes in, buys out Thorn EMI, but still partners with HBO and it becomes HBO slash Canon Video. And again, most of the movies, low budget action films, awesome movies not taking anything away from them uh, by 1987 HBO Canon ends up being renamed HBO video short time later, it changes names again to HBO entertainment and uh, they had a few successes, but really it was touch and go for a while. It wouldn't be until HBO original programming really took off in the nineties when HBO entertainment had it made mm-hmm. because now they became the distribution for HBO originals that everybody wanted to have.
1: Uh, Right. But at the time, it was really just scraping by.
0: Yeah. Moving on to 1986, that's when HBO established HBO Showcase, which was an actual production company. So they had already moved into distribution and they had a production company over uh, on the West Coast in Los Angeles called HBO Pictures. But now they wanted to create another production company on the East Coast. So this one was based in New York. And the idea was to make grittier more you know kind of realistic or hard hitting uh, movies than HBO Pictures was known for so their first picture was about a KGB agent who was involved in a big CIA operation this was actually a true story about uh, Yuri Nasinko so they they were going kind of this this hard gritty route and in general people said it felt more like HBO whereas the stuff from HBO Pictures But a little more, you know, uh, glossy and glitzy certainly had bigger budgets, uh, had access to bigger names. So you saw more uh, movie stars in HBO Pictures productions. But uh, the HBO Showcase would be the kind of more down to earth stuff. So both of these would eventually merge together and become HBO Films. And Colin Callender, who had been the head of HBO Showcase, became the head of this whole department. I'm sure there were some grumblings on both sides. I'm sure the 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 showcase folks were thinking, you know, oh, they get all the money and they get all, <laughs> they get access to all that talent. Whereas the pictures folks were probably thinking they have this crazy reputation, which we should have because look at what we're doing. So
1: so everyone get together and play nice.
0: Yeah. Uh, fortunately, they were separated by the rest of the United States, with one being in L.A. and the other being in New York. So I think they could they were insulated enough where it wasn't too much of a problem also in 1986. Now, this is another big moment in HBO history because it, it established a practice that ended up becoming an industry-wide standard. Mm-hmm. It's another reason why we really wanted to talk about HBO at length, because so many of the things they did influenced multiple industries. In this case, they began to scramble or encode signals full-time for those satellite signals. Now, if you listen to the first episode, you learned about HBO using uplinks to send a signal up to a satellite, which used transponders leased by HBO to amplify the signal, send it back down to downlinks across the nation to cable providers mm-hmm,
1: because it's spread out over the entirety of North America. And at this point, the cost of purchasing a satellite dish for yourself had lowered to the point where where Common families could purchase one if they wanted.
0: Yeah, if they if they saved up. I mean, even back when it was still tens of thousands of dollars, you had a few crazy people with lots of money buying these things because the signals weren't scrambled. The signals were clear.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So so once you bought in what I mean, for, for the purchase price of that satellite dish, you could watch whatever you wanted to.
0: Absolutely free. And so pay TV stations didn't like this because you didn't have to subscribe to cable at all. Cable companies didn't like it because you didn't have to subscribe to cable at all. You just had this dish, which at the time was enormous. Uh, This was before they had developed the the uh, dishes that are more common these days. This is when if you remember back in the 80s, the enormous satellite dishes that might be out in front of someone's yard or in the backyard. That's what I'm talking about. The big like nine footers. Mm -hmm. So you're able to get these signals clear. And not only that, broadcast television hated it. And you might think, well why did broadcast television hate it? You could get those shows for free using an antenna. Well, it's cuz those shows aren't really free. The reason why those shows are are possible at all is because they're ad supported, right? Advertisers buy advertising time on those shows and that money goes to the the production companies. There're more steps in here, but in general, the production companies are able to make shows because the money made through advertising. Well, if you're using a satellite to pull down the raw feed, you're getting the raw feed. You're getting what's called the backhaul feed, which is before they put any commercials into the content. So you were getting commercial free content from all the different providers, something that broadcast and cable stations and cable providers all hated. So how do you fix this problem? Well, what HBO decided to do was to invest in in uh this encoding and scrambling technology they they ended up going with General Instruments Video Cipher 2 to encrypt the audio and video signals
1: uh once they've done that you'd have to have a decryption box on the private end in order to decrypt the signals
0: right so cable companies had these descramblers right they mm-hmm. can just descramble it and they had an agreement with HBO originally it was just HBO but other ch- other channels would follow suit so HBO ended up like i said creating this industry standard approach so the cable providers would all have these descramblers and as a private citizen you could get a descrambler but uh it wouldn't necessarily work you'd have to pay HBO to have access you could actually go out and buy chips that would decrypt things for you uh, but often these chips would only be good for about a month and what would happen is that the provider on the other end would see that someone usually it's some fake address that's been made out to a a customer, uh, has not paid their bill. And so they cut off the service. So for a month you have service and then suddenly you don't. So people kept trying to find ways to get around this, but uh, it meant that for the most part, it was much harder to pirate a signal. Now this made satellite dish owners very, very angry. <laughs> they felt entitled to the stuff they were stealing because in their minds, they had paid thousands of dollars for a satellite dish Therefore, they should have access to all this content, despite the fact that all the content providers are saying, yeah, see, the money you spent didn't go to help pay for the actual content, and unless we get paid for the content we make, we can't make it. So you're actually talking about a behavior that ultimately will completely destroy the business that you want to to enjoy. You want this content, you want to be able to watch stuff, but... If we're not getting money for it, we can't make the stuff you want to watch. But the satellite provi- uh, t- satellite owners said, I want my free HBO. <laughs> so
1: Jonathan has some opinions.
0: I, I don't side with the pirates on this one, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand. I understand the other arguments, which we'll get into when we talk about streaming. I'll, I'll I'll you know, it's not that I don't feel empathy for folks who want to have access to content. It's just that if you had the choice of either spending Thousands of dollars for a satellite dish and then stealing everything or th- just subscribing. That is,
1: that, that, then, that is a different issue. And, yeah. and it's a little bit on the silly end. Um, but meanwhile, also in 1986, uh, uh, Jeff Bukes became HBO's chief financial officer. He,
0: he wouldn't be finished rising the ranks because if you listen to our last episode, we kind of gave it away. 1987, HBO launches Festival. This is going to sound like it's a uh, like it's a deja vu. All over again.
1: All <laughs> uh, right, right. Remember take two?
0: Yeah, that was the idea of creating a, a kid friendly network that was lower priced. So people who weren't either willing to pay the full subscription price for HBO or objected to the content would have an alternative. It also did not work. Yeah, apparently they didn't <laughs> learn anything from take two because festival, to me, sounds like it was the same thing.
1: Exactly the same thing. No, yeah, it would it would wind up uh, getting canceled entirely within a,
0: a year, within a year. Yeah. The, the problem was that they were trying to target two different populations. They wanted to target the conservative older people who didn't want all that filth on their TV, and they wanted to target families with young children who wanted to have kid-friendly programming. But the problem was all the older conservatives said, why do you have all this children programming on my station? I don't want any of this. This is not interesting to me. And all the families were saying, I got this channel so that I could watch stuff and my kids could watch stuff. But when my kids have gone to bed, the only stuff you have on is on Golden Pond 40 times in a row. I don't care about that. So neither target audience was satisfied. Mm -hmm. So it's the lesson here is if you want to target two very different audiences, Splitting the difference hardly ever works.
1: Uh, rarely. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um The next year, though, in 1988, something with kids did work out.
0: Yes. The Kids in the Hall, in fact, premiered on HBO. Canadian sketch comedy troupe. Brilliant. One of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Seen them live. Good stuff. And that wraps up the HBO story part two. Next week, we will have the part three of the story. And again, like I said, a lot has happened in the years since 2014, so I'll probably have to do an update uh, to this at some point and talk really about how HBO and Warner Brothers have really transformed the entertainment space, particularly in a a world that went through a pandemic. That really shook things up in a big, big way. But uh, that'll have to wait. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, or ones that require an update, let me know. The best way to do that is to reach out on Twitter. And the handle I use is techstuffhsw. Next week, we're going to have part three of this. So stay tuned for that. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
3: it's Zumo Play.